The Old Testament reading today will be Genesis 2, 24 through 25. The New Testament reading will be from Mark 10, uh, verses 2 through 12. Uh, Really, the sermon will focus more on the Mark 10 passage. Uh, This is the ninth sermon in this series within a series on the subject of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Uh, you notice I actually snuck an extra sermon in there without you even noticing. Uh, it was supposed to be seven, then I told you, okay, it's going to be eight, but here it is nine. And, and this will be the last sermon in this series. Uh, we will uh, deal with some text that is seasonal next Sunday, and then we will be right back into Genesis uh, chapter three uh, on the Sunday after that, Lord willing. Let's give ourselves now to the reading of God's most holy word, Genesis chapter two. Uh, Verse 24, here we find the first mention of the marriage covenant. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And now turn with me to Mark chapter 10, verses 2 through 12. Here again we see Jesus being asked questions about the subject of divorce and also Uh, This pertains to our conversation about remarriage. Mark 10, verse 2. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? This should sound familiar to you, because we looked at a similar passage in Matthew chapter 19 last week. And Jesus answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh, Jesus says. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. They had personal time with Jesus there to to probe more deeply into this issue. And so they asked him more about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So far, the reading of God's most holy word, Lord, help us as this text is preached and as we labor to apply it today. In the introduction to the previous sermon, I I mentioned that there was a time when I held to the permanence view of marriage, which is the view that the one flesh union established by God in the marriage covenant lasts for life, death being the only thing that can dissolve it. Back in 2010, I preached a sermon stating that though divorce is permitted under some circumstances, remarriage is not at least not until the death of the spouse. Uh, No longer do I hold to that view. I had doubts about it shortly after preaching that sermon in 2010. Those doubts grew progressively stronger. I abandoned the permanence view a few years ago and am now publicly disavowing it as I present a view that I believe to be much more true to the teaching of Scripture. If you were to compare what I stated last week and what I am about to say today, with the statements that I made all those years ago, you would probably actually be struck by the similarities between the two positions, the one that I held then and the one that I hold to now. Uh, Truly, the view that I held to then and the view that I hold to now do share many things in common, but the point of difference is very significant. 
Is divorce ever permitted? Uh, Both then and now, I say, though God's revealed will is that marriage is to last for life, divorce is permitted in the case of the sin of adultery or when a believing spouse is abandoned by a non-believing spouse. This the New Testament scriptures are clear about. Uh, Does a Christian sin if he or she files for divorce? Uh, Both then and now, I say, the Christian does not sin if they divorce with biblical grounds. When the scriptures say that God hates divorce, it is in reference to divorce that is unjustified and without biblical grounds. God hates divorce because divorce is always the result of some sin, but not everyone who divorces sins, you understand. For sometimes divorce is justified, according to the Scriptures. And does a Christian sin if he or she remarries after divorce? And here is where my view has changed. Uh, Back in 2010, I would have said yes. For the one flesh union remains for life. A certificate of divorce may protect the innocent husband or wife, but it does not dissolve that one flesh union. Only death can do that. But now, when asked, does a Christian sin if he or she remarries after divorce, I say, it depends. It depends on whether or not the divorce was valid, according to the Scriptures. To divorce without biblical grounds and to remarry is to commit adultery. Did you hear what I just said there? To to divorce without biblical grounds and to remarry is to commit adultery. But when a person divorces with biblical grounds... He or she is free to remarry, for the valid divorce does in fact bring the marriage covenant and that one flesh union to an end. When is a Christian permitted to divorce according to the Scriptures? Well, last week we learned that the Christian is permitted, but not required, to divorce if their spouse has committed adultery. Also, the Christian is permitted to divorce if they have been abandoned by a non-believing spouse. These are the two grounds for divorce stated in the New Testament for the New Covenant people of God. And what I am saying now is that if the divorce was with biblical grounds, remarriage is permitted given that a valid divorce does indeed put an end to the marriage bond. And so let us consider these things more carefully in two points. One, Ordinarily, to divorce and remarry is to commit adultery. And two, remarriage is permitted if the divorce was valid and with biblical grounds. And so, first of all, it must be understood that ordinarily, to divorce and to remarry is to commit adultery. This is the clear teaching of the New Testament. Ordinarily, as a general rule, to divorce and then to marry again is to commit adultery. There are a few New Testament texts that we need to consider which clearly communicate this general rule. And as we consider these texts, perhaps you will understand why the permanence view of marriage seemed compelling to me all those years ago. I guess I'm asking for a little bit of sympathy and understanding right now, right? Listen carefully to these texts and understand why the permanence view of remarriage does, on the surface, seem to be compelling. The first text is Mark 10. It's the one that we read in the introduction to this sermon, and so hopefully you're still there. Uh, In verse 10 of Mark 10, uh, there, this passage speaks to this issue, but we should remember the context. Jesus was being pressed by some Pharisees concerning his view on divorce. And in Mark 10:2, we read, And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, and they asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And Jesus' answer was very clear. He says again, just like he did in Matthew 19, Moses permitted divorce due to the hardness of your hearts. 
But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And so Jesus stated the ideal, that the marriage covenant is to last for life. And then we read these words in verse 10. And in the house the disciples asked him about this matter again, and he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. Do you hear how, how, how direct this comment is, how plain and clear this teaching is? Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And so Jesus taught that for a man or woman to divorce his or her husband or wife, and to marry another is to commit adultery. Notice that no exception is found in this text at all. It's just stated directly, rather bluntly here. Something very similar is communicated in Luke 16, 18. If you'd like to turn there, that would be good. Uh, we're going to be primarily in the Gospels, once in 1 Corinthians 7, but primarily in the Gospels here. Luke 16, 18. There in that passage, we hear the words of Christ again. This is the teaching of Christ. And here he says most directly, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Do you hear the plain teaching of Christ here? It's the same principle that was communicated in Mark 10. The one who divorces and remarries commits adultery. But notice that something different is also communicated in the second half of Luke 16, 18. He who marries a woman divorced from her husband also commits adultery, Jesus says. And so imagine a situation that a person has been divorced. Now, the one who joins themselves to that person who has been divorced is also involved in the sin of adultery, according to Christ. So after reading Mark 10 and Luke 16, we are left with this understanding of the subject of divorce and remarriage. To divorce and remarry is to commit adultery. And to marry one who has been divorced is to commit adultery. In other words... Everyone agrees that when a husband or wife steps out on their husband and joins themselves to another sexually, it is adulterous. We don't need to debate about that, do we? Uh, that clearly is the sin of adultery. A, a married person goes out and, and joins himself to another. That is the sin of adultery. But Jesus' view is that to divorce and then to join yourself to another, even if it be in the bonds of another marriage covenant, is also to commit adultery. And so... Can you see why I have said that ordinarily to divorce and remarry is to commit adultery according to the Scriptures? And can you see why some hold to the permanent view of marriage which I myself held to for a time all those years ago? These passages uh, seem to, to be saying that there is something about that marriage bond that is permanent so that even if, even if you go through a, a legal divorce and you join yourself to another person, that act of joining yourself to another person, even if it be in another marriage covenant, is adulterous, Jesus is saying. The question that we must ask is, are there any exceptions to this general rule that is so clearly established by Christ? Are there any circumstances where a husband or wife would be permitted to divorce and also free to remarry? Are there any circumstances where there might be a divorce and a remarriage and and, and, and the sin of adultery is not committed by the one who is remarrying. There are two other New Testament texts that we must consider, and when we consider these, it must be recognized that these two texts do cite exceptions to the general rule established in Mark 10 and also Luke 16. 
that ordinarily to be divorced and to remarry is to commit adultery. The first is Matthew 5, 31 and 32. If you would please turn there. Matthew 5, 31. Here again we hear the words of Christ. This is His teaching. And Christ said, it was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So first of all, notice that Matthew 5 perfectly agrees with what is found in Mark 10 and Luke 16, which we have just looked at. Matthew 5 clearly states that to marry a divorced woman is to commit adultery. Uh, By the way, it is reasonable to understand each of these texts as applying to both men and women, husbands and wives. Sometimes it is only the husband or the wife mentioned, but the scriptures um, treat both in the same way in regard to the issue of divorce and remarriage. So again, Matthew 5 clearly states that to marry a divorced person is the idea, is to commit adultery. It also says that when a husband divorces his wife, he makes her commit adultery. Did you see that there in Matthew 5? When a husband divorces his wife, he makes her commit adultery. What does that mean? Well, I think the idea is this. When a husband divorces his wife, he puts her in a very difficult position. She will likely remarry. I think this was especially true in Jesus' day. And when she remarries, she will commit adultery, according to the passages that we have already looked at. But there is an exception to this rule stated in in Mark 5. It says, except on the grounds, excuse me, Matthew 5, the text says, except on the grounds of sexual immorality. Did you, did you notice that? Uh, listen again, 532. But I say to you that everyone who divorces wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. So why the exception here in this passage? Well, in this case, I think it is quite obvious. If the wife was sexually immoral in the marriage relationship, then she has already committed adultery, hasn't she? She has already become an adulteress. It cannot be said, therefore, that the husband makes her to commit adultery when he divorces her, for she has already made herself one by committing sexual immorality within the marriage relationship. The husband does not do wrong when he divorces his wife because of her sexual immorality, and neither does a wife do wrong if she divorces her husband because he is an adulterer. Uh, This is how we are to understand the exception clause of Matthew chapter 5. There is one last text that we must consider uh, in the Gospels when it comes to this issue of of divorce, and that is Matthew 19, verses 8 through 9. Uh, This text also contains an exception clause. And this exception clause makes it clear that the one who divorces his or her spouse on the grounds of sexual immorality, which is to say adultery, is also free to remarry. Listen again to the words of Christ as He interacted with the Pharisees concerning the topic of divorce and remarriage. He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, I'm looking at Matthew 19.8 here, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, that is under the Old Covenant, according to Deuteronomy 24. But from the beginning it was not so, that is according to Genesis 2.24-25. And I say to you, these are the words of Jesus, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. 
And so notice that this passage also agrees with all the others. Ordinarily, to divorce and remarry is to commit adultery. Stated differently, to divorce without biblical grounds, that is to divorce for no good reason, according to the Scriptures, and to marry again is to commit adultery, is what this passage says. But what is the exception that is stated here in Matthew 19, except for what? Sexual immorality. If a spouse commits sexual immorality, he or she commits adultery. The Greek word translated sexual immorality is pornea. It is used interchangeably with the Greek word translated as adultery, which is moikia, throughout the Septuagint. This is helpful here. It shows us that pornea and moikia are nearly synonymous, at least in this context. For a married person to commit the sin of sexual immorality means that they have been adulterous, you see. Adultery, as we know, is a grounds for divorce. And if one has divorced because of sexual immorality, he or she is also free to remarry, according to this text. And so what is the general rule communicated in each of these passages? Ordinarily, to divorce and remarry is to commit adultery, but there are exceptions to this general rule. The exception is when the divorce is the result of the sin of sexual immorality. In that case, the innocent spouse does not sin when he or she divorces and remarries. Friends, it was as true in Jesus' day as it is in our own. Uh, Many divorces are for no good reason, you understand. And this is the thing that Jesus was addressing as these questions are are coming to Him. It, It does bring me some comfort to know that the Pharisees, who were the religious leaders of the day, thought they could trip Jesus up on this issue. It is a very difficult subject. And as they brought these questions to Him, this is the thing that is in the background. All of these invalid divorces, all of these divorces that were, uh, that, that were brought about for no good reason. And that is the thing that is Jesus is addressing in each of these circumstances, you see. He is addressing these divorces, these divorces brought about for no good reason at all. You know, we, we got a divorce. Why did you get a divorce? We fell out of love. Oh, you fell out of love. Okay. Uh, we, we got a divorce. Why did you get a divorce? Because he was exceedingly difficult. You know, he got angry from time to time or something like that. You know, uh, we, we just didn't share anything in common anymore. You know, we used to, but we changed and we don't now. And so uh, we got a divorce. Uh, we got a divorce. Why did you get a divorce? I wasn't happy in the marriage relationship. And doesn't God want me to be happy after all? Doesn't he want me to be happy? Isn't that God's greatest priority? My happiness? And so we have divorced, and I'm now pursuing happiness with another. You see, I mean, these are the kinds of reasons that people divorce in our culture. Wouldn't you agree? Uh, Sometimes it is because of the sin of sexual immorality or adultery, but oftentimes it is for no good reason at all. And this is what Jesus is addressing as he is interacting with these Pharisees. Uh, Jesus, are we allowed to divorce for any reason? God's ideal for marriage is that marriage lasts for life. The answer is no. Don't dissolve the marriage union. In fact, for you to dissolve the marriage union, for you to divorce for no good reason, and to join yourself to another is to commit adultery. What, how is that any different from you going and sleeping with someone else while you're married? There's a piece of paper involved now. There's some legal process, I suppose. But 
you're divorcing for no good reason and you're joining yourself to another, even another marriage covenant, the, val- the, the divorce is not valid. That is what Christ is saying here. And that's how we're to understand all of these passages where Jesus puts the matter so bluntly, right? And so this must be said, to divorce for no good reason and to remarry is to commit adultery. This is the clear and undeniable teaching of Holy Scripture. And it needs to be said today. It needs to be said. More needs to be said than this, though. Secondly, it must be admitted that remarriage is permitted if the divorce was valid and with biblical grounds. If the divorce was the result of marital infidelity, then remarriage is permitted. This is clearly communicated by the exception clause of Matthew 19.9, which again says whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. There is this exception here. Uh, Why isn't this exception included in Mark 10 and Luke 16? That is the big question. In those passages, there is no exception mentioned, only the general rule that to divorce and remarry is to commit adultery. Well, I think the answer is because the focus of those passages is slightly different. There in those passages, remarriage after a legitimate divorce is the thing being condemned. There a general rule is established, but sometimes there are exceptions to general rules and the exceptions only need to be stated once for the exceptions to be valid. As a general rule, for example, it is wrong to take a a human life, is it not? As a general rule, it is wrong and sinful to take a human life. Generally, this is called what? This is called murder, but there are exceptions to this rule. Think of self-defense. Think of righteous war. Think of capital punishment. These are exceptions to the rule, and those who take a life in these circumstances are not guilty of the sin of murder, are they? Do the exceptions have to be stated every time the Scriptures forbid the taking of a human life or the the, the sin of murder? No, they don't have to be stated every time. They only need to be stated once. The, The exceptions stand, even if they are stated only once and not repeated every time the issue of the sin of taking another human life is brought up, and, and so it is with the issue of divorce and remarriage. And I think this is where the permanence view of marriage begins to break down in my mind. It, it does not adequately account for the exception clause of Matthew chapter 19. Uh, yes, I am aware of the argument that Matthew 19 has divorce during the betrothal period in view and not divorce during marriage. That was my reason given all those years ago. But this interpretation seems very strained to me now. In the context, the Pharisees are clearly asking about divorce in the context of marriage. That's what they're bringing to Jesus. Divorce, not in the betrothal period, but divorce from the marriage relationship. Uh, I'm also aware that there are some that claim there is a significant difference between the terms pornea and moikia in the text, but this argument also begins to crumble under closer scrutiny. And there are still others that try to do away with the exception clause of Matthew 19 by arguing against it from textual criticism. But none of these arguments seem compelling to me any longer. It is better that we allow the exception clause of Matthew 19 to stand. The new covenant exception of divorce and remarriage being permitted in the case of adultery makes perfect sense to me, uh, given the transition from the old covenant to the new. And I went into this a bit last week, and I'll restate it here because I think it is important. Under the old covenant, divorce was permitted for more reasons than adultery, given the hardness of Israel's heart. You understand that? It was more broad. And why was it more broad? Due to the hardness of your heart, Jesus said. Whereas the sin of adultery was punishable by what? By death. 
And so the sin of adultery, that the penalty for it was more extreme, more strict, given that Israel was a nation governed by God's righteous laws. So the adulterer was to be put to death, right? Um, and also, uh, the, the, the valid reasons for divorce and remarriage were, were broader because of the sin uh, or the hardness of Israel's heart. But we see that under uh, the new covenant, something, something happens. First of all, uh, the penalty for adultery is greatly relaxed, even done away with. The church no longer has the obligation to bear the sword and to put the adulterer to death. And so uh, the sin of adultery is not punishable by death, at least not by the church, the new covenant people of God. But what we see is that the grounds for, 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 adultery, for, for uh, divorce and, and then remarriage are greatly restricted. They're greatly restricted. The new covenant people of God should not have hard hearts, you understand. Uh, the old covenant people of God, some of them did, because not all of Israel was regenerate. But under the new covenant, all who are a part of this new covenant are regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit. So this issue of hardness of heart should not pertain to the new covenant people of God. Remember uh, Jeremiah the prophet speaking of the coming new covenant in Jeremiah 31. All of God's people in this new covenant will have the law within them. For he will write it on their hearts, and they shall all know him from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. What is the great difference between the old covenant people of God and the new covenant people of God? Well, the old covenant people of God were a mixed people. Some knew the Lord and some did not. Whereas under the new covenant, all who are in this new covenant know the Lord. So should we find any within our churches who have hard hearts towards God and towards their spouse? No, we should expect that within our churches, Christians will struggle in their marriage. Uh, Christians will indeed have problems. But there's going to be a softness of heart concerning God and concerning their spouse so that uh, divorce for reasons other than adultery should not be tolerated or expected. This is, what, this is what the New Testament text so clearly says to us. And it makes sense given the transition of the Old Covenant to the New the scriptures are clear, remarriage is permitted if the divorce was valid and with biblical grounds, and the sin of adultery is the only valid grounds for divorce mentioned in the pages of the New Testament, and at least as it pertains to initiating divorce. Now, Paul is also clear that the Christian who has been abandoned by a non-Christian is free to let them go, that is, they are to permit the divorce, to allow it to happen, and also to remarry. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 7. I believe this will be the last text that we turn to uh, today. 1 Corinthians 7. And we need to listen carefully to Paul's words in verse 12. 1 Corinthians 7, 12. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord. Again, the only thing that that means is this was not something that Jesus himself taught on directly. It does not mean that these words are less authoritative somehow. That's not our view of Scripture. Uh, the Gospels and the letters of Paul are equally authoritative. They are the Word of God. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, do you understand the circumstance being addressed here? If any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. Notice the same is true for the wife. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. 
but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, do you hear this? Uh, this, this? This means divorce, by the way. If the unbelieving partner wants to leave, if they want to divorce, if they are not willing to stay, if they separate, what is the Christian to do? Let it be so. This does not mean that the Christian is not to fight to keep the relationship together. That is not it. But, but after all has been done to keep the marriage intact, if still they, they wish to leave, they wish to separate, let it be so. In such cases, Paul says, the brother, that is the Christian, or sister, that is the Christian, is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. And so what Paul is teaching is that in such a circumstance, the Christian is freed from the marriage bond, the marriage obligations. They are to let the non-believer go. Uh, here I think we see that we should, ex- we should not be surprised at least when, when marriages within the church look very different from marriages in the world and when the issue of divorce and remarriage is very different within the church than it is from the world. We see here is a union between a Christian and a non-Christian and if the non-believer wants to separate and to go, uh, the Christian is not enslaved. They are free to let them go and I believe to also uh, remarry. And so this is the principle that seems to underlie the biblical teaching on the subject of divorce and remarriage. Uh, the one flesh union is not what makes a marriage a marriage, but the marriage covenant is the thing that makes a marriage a marriage. And the marriage covenant is breakable. I think this is one of the main differences between the permanence view of marriage and the one that I am now presenting you. It's not the one flesh union that makes a marriage a marriage, but it is the, the marriage covenant that makes a marriage a marriage. Notice very briefly that not all one flesh unions are permanent. The scriptures teach this. Uh, Listen to 1 Corinthians 6.16 Or do you not know, the apostle writes, that he who joins to a prostitute becomes one body with her, one soma, one flesh with her, for as it is written, the two will become one flesh, one soma. Uh, This is the clear teaching of the Apostle Paul, that when you join yourself to a prostitute, you become one flesh with her. But let me ask you this, does a man enter into marriage with a prostitute when he becomes one flesh with her? No, a marriage is not made by that that sin of of sexual immorality. Uh, Why is a marriage not made? Because there is no covenant. Uh, No covenant has been entered into. And this is what makes sexual intimacy outside of marriage such a sinful and destructive thing. The one flesh union is to be enjoyed within the bonds of the marriage covenant. But the covenant is what makes the union lasting. Without the covenant, the union is only a temporary and sinful thing. Do do you understand uh, what is being said here? But notice that the marriage covenant is also a breakable covenant. It is a breakable covenant. What do husbands and wives do when they take their vows on their wedding day? Do they not stand before one another and promise to be faithful to one another in good times and in bad till death do them part? Is that not at the heart of the marriage vows that we say? And this promise should not be broken, but the sad truth is that sometimes it is. And this corresponds to what Jesus said concerning marriage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two flesh, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Notice this, Christ did not say that they could not be separated. He does not say that it is impossible for them to be separated, but what he is saying is that they should not be separated. Husband and wife should enjoy their one flesh union for life, and this is made possible through the marriage covenant. 
and the covenant should not be broken. One last point needs to be made in support of the possibility of remarriage after a divorce that is valid. And it is this, God Himself is divorced and remarried. Do you you understand that, brothers and sisters? God Himself is divorced and remarried. And this might sound strange at first, but here I have in mind those Old Testament passages that speak of God divorcing Israel. For what reason, by the way? Is it not because of her adultery, her unfaithfulness? And what did God also do after divorcing Old Covenant Israel for her spiritual adultery, her unfaithfulness? He has entered into a new covenant. He has entered into a new covenant. Take, for example, Jeremiah 3, verses 6 through 8. There the prophet writes, The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, Have you seen what she did? This is the Lord speaking to the prophet, saying, Have you seen what she did? He's speaking of his his bride, his wife, his covenant people. Have you seen what she did, that faithless one Israel, how she went up on every high hill and under every green tree, in other words, to to the false places of worship, to to these places of idolatry? Have you seen what she did? She there in those places played the whore. And I thought after she has done all this, she will return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah sought. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. Strong language here, condemning the old covenant people of God for their spiritual infidelity. But what does it say? She was unfaithful. I gave her a certificate of divorce. And after divorcing Old Covenant Israel, we know that God did also establish a new covenant. Throughout the Old Testament, the sin of idolatry, false worship, is compared to the sin of adultery. So that when God's people are idolatrous, when they run after other gods instead of being faithful to their God, the one true God, it is compared to when a wife is unfaithful to her husband. Israel was spiritually adulterous. And what did God do? After being patient with her for a very long time, by the way, he took her back again and again and again. But after all of that, he did finally divorce her and he entered into a new covenant. If divorce and remarriage were always sinful for us, then I think it would be very inappropriate to speak of God as one who had divorced his people and married another. And yet this is what he has done. He has divorced Old Covenant Israel and has entered into a new covenant with people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And so clearly there is such a thing as valid divorce. And and when divorce is valid, here is the point, then remarriage is also permitted. As I have said before, it is one thing to understand the teaching of Scripture on this subject. Uh, That in and of itself, I think, is a bit of a challenge. Uh, But it is another thing altogether to apply this teaching to the often difficult, complicated, and messy situations that people get themselves into. Uh, The application of these truths is the more difficult thing, in my opinion, especially in our day. Uh, Some situations are rather black and white. For example, if a husband or wife has committed adultery and is unrepentant, then it is quite clear that there will be a divorce and that the innocent party is free to remarry. I, I believe that the innocent party should still proceed with great caution, but I am saying that the innocent party does not sin when he or she divorces 
and that they are free to remarry in, in, in a black and white situation such as this. I think the same can be said of a situation where a Christian is truly abandoned by a non-believing spouse. Remember, if a non-believing partner separates, let it be so, Paul says. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to be to peace. So this is, again, black and white. The, the non-believer has left. It's clear. But many situations are, are much more complicated than these. And I'd like to just mention a few of them so that you might uh, work through the application of this teaching yourself. What if, for example, a husband or wife has committed adultery but appears to be truly repentant, and I do emphasize truly repentant. I will say again what I said last Sunday. The innocent spouse is permitted to divorce, but they may also choose to remain in the marriage. True forgiveness will need to be extended. The couple will need to work diligently, very diligently, to restore the marriage and to rebuild trust. At some point, the innocent party will need to lay aside his or her right to divorce. He or she cannot go on forever and ever in the decades to come, always threatening divorce for the sin that was committed in the past that supposedly has been forgiven. Certainly the church will need to be involved in this. Pastoral care uh, will be needed. Uh, See, this situation here is not so black and white, is it? But it is difficult. It is complex. And what if, for example, two Christians separate from one another But without biblical grounds, could you imagine a situation like that? Two who profess faith in Christ, they separate from from one another, but without biblical grounds. Should the Christians be separated? Well, the answer to that question is no, they should not, for they do not have grounds. Uh, Listen to Paul's words, though. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but listen, listen to this. But if she does, you know, it's, it's not right that she does. If she is a Christian and does not have grounds, she should not separate from her husband. But if she does, I love that Paul knows that messy things happen within the church. He's writing to the church in Corinth, after all, which was a messy church. But if she does, what should she do? She should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife, 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 11. So Paul is envisioning this very situation. You have a Christian husband, a Christian wife, and they are separated. What are their options according to the Scriptures? They should not be separated, but if they are, uh, they should not remarry, but should remain as they are or else be reconciled. That is, their, that is to be their primary concern. They should have reconciliation as their only goal. Another situation here that is less than black and white. And what if a Christian husband or wife has been abandoned, but not by an unbeliever, as in the situation addressed by Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, but by a spouse who claims to be a Christian? I think here is a situation that illustrates why it is so important to be a part of a church that exercises Biblical church discipline. I'll pause here for a moment to ask you this question. When the issue of a divorce is being addressed, where is it usually addressed within our culture? By the couple alone with the courts, you see. I'm not saying that the courts should not be involved. I think they should, actually. This is a, a civil thing, too. But it's so important for Christians to be within churches that are actual churches, according to to the scriptures, where church discipline is actually being exercised. If a person 
claims to be a Christian and has separated from his or her spouse without biblical grounds, then church discipline must be done according to Matthew chapter 18. I hope you would agree with that. Brother in Christ, you have left your wife for no good reason? That, that can't be. Help us to understand. Do you have grounds? Explain it to us. What's going on here, brother? Repent of your sin. And if the one who claims to be a Christian and has abandoned his or her spouse without grounds will not repent when called by the church to repent, then that one should eventually be put out of the church and be viewed as a non-believer. For with their mouth they claim to be one of God's people, but by their fruit they prove not to be. Then, after the process of church discipline is carefully, patiently, and lovingly carried out, the one who has been abandoned would be free to go through with the divorce and to remarry, for in fact he or she has been abandoned not by a believer, though the person might still say that they are one, but by an unbeliever. And this is exactly what Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians 7. Now we have this situation, the black and white one. A believer has been abandoned by a non-believer. And what about abuse within the marriage relationship? Is abuse grounds for divorce? I truly hesitate to even bring this up because I know that some will be tempted to misuse what I am about to say. And so let me be exceedingly clear. I am talking about real abuse here, which does happen. I am talking about real abuse here. I'm not referring to an unhappy marriage. I'm not referring to a marriage that is marked by conflict. I'm not referring to a marriage where the love has grown cold or anything like that. I am referring to a truly abusive relationship, either emotionally or physically. And I think determining what constitutes emotional abuse can be very difficult. And here is why these situations should be dealt with with the help of others. If there is emotional abuse, the church can help. If there is physical abuse, the church should be involved, but also the civil authorities, I think. It is right for a woman, if she is being physically abused, to call the, the authorities and to allow them to do their work, which they themselves are uniquely qualified to do. But a Christian is not obligated to remain in a truly abusive situation, but is right to remove themselves from it, especially to protect the children if they are present. It is, it is our opinion that abuse may actually fall under the category of abandonment, as mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. In other words, I believe, and, and we, and when I say we, I speak of the eldership of this church, uh, I believe, and, and I think we believe, that it is possible for a person uh, to, to thoroughly abandon the marriage covenant while at the same time refusing to leave the home. This might sound strange, but I've seen it. It is possible for someone to thoroughly abandon the marriage covenant while at the same time refusing to leave the home. Why would someone do such a thing? I'll tell you exactly why someone would do such a thing. Some people care about the opinions of those within the church and community. And so they abuse behind closed doors, but they will not leave because they know that if they leave, they will be thought ill of by those that they respect, you see. And so I have seen this. Abuse behind closed doors and yet the appearance of a happy and healthy marriage on the surface. Others enjoy the benefits that come along with the marriage relationship. In other words, they enjoy the intimacy. They enjoy the meals. They enjoy the nicely kept home. They enjoy the financial security. And so they abuse, and yet they refuse to leave the home and the comforts that are found within it. 
Other reasons could be given, I'm sure. Uh, and these situations are very complex, friends, and, and we should proceed with, with great caution. But I do believe that a Christian is not obligated to remain in a situation where he or she is truly being abused. The church must be involved in these situations. You must work through them, uh, relying upon the counsel of others. And what about a Christian with an invalid divorce in his or her past? This might be you, I don't know. Perhaps the divorce happened while a young Christian, or perhaps it happened while an unbeliever. And I would ask questions like this, more would need to be asked. Have you been remarried? Has your former husband or wife been remarried? If the answer is no, then it may be that pursuing reconciliation would be appropriate. But even this is questionable and and uncertain. Were you both unbelievers when you divorced? Are you a Christian now? And is he or she an unbeliever? If so, then I probably would not recommend that you remarry because then you would be joining yourself to a non-believer, you see, which the Scriptures expressly forbid. Have you or they remarried? If so, then there is nothing to be done except to confess your sin and to seek forgiveness for the wrongs committed. Uh, Once new unions have been forged, they should not be undone, according to the Scriptures. Uh, The Scriptures forbid taking a spouse back once they have married another, which is the point of Deuteronomy chapter 24. What am I doing right now? Two things. I'm, I'm trying to help you work through practical application. I'm also hoping that you see how exceedingly complex this is. Uh, The teaching of Scripture is a bit complex, but especially the application of it to the messy situations we find ourselves in. And what about a Christian with an adulterous past? It should be remembered that though the sin of adultery has its consequences, adultery is not an unforgivable sin. Some will reason to themselves this way, well, if adultery is forgivable, then I might as well commit it. Uh, But such is the thinking of a wicked and godless person. If you've committed adultery, turn from your sin and believe upon Christ. There will likely be consequences to that sin. There always are consequences to our sin. But this is not an unforgivable sin. Turn to Christ. Trust only in Him. Pursue Him with all that you are from this day forward. We must remember that even the sin of adultery is not unforgivable, though it is greatly damaging. Brothers and sisters, as our culture continues to deteriorate around us. The church must pursue holiness. My belief is that the gap between so-called conservative churches and liberal churches is only going to grow wider and wider in the decades to come. By conservative churches, I mean those churches that actually believe that the Scriptures are the Word of God and that the Scriptures are to govern our beliefs and our practices. And by liberal, I mean those traditions, and and I do not even believe that they are true churches or even Christian, but are another religion altogether. Um, I am talking about those traditions whose doctrine and practice are governed not by the Word of God, but by other things. Rationalism, pragmatism, uh, chasing societal evolution, and the like. The gap between these traditions, those who believe God's Word and those who do not have it as their foundation and as their, uh, their, their guide for truth, that, that gap is only going to grow wider as our culture changes more and more. Those who are conservative will remain where they are, and those who are liberal will follow the world wherever it goes. They will continue to evolve with our culture. Do you, do you not see it all around us? 
churches who are doing this very thing, just chasing the culture. They're usually a few years behind it, but they're not too far behind it. This gap is going to grow and grow, and, and the reason I bring this up is because I believe that our view of marriage is going to be a, a central issue in the decades to come. And this is why I've devoted nine sermons to the topic of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Uh, brothers and sisters, what I am saying is that our marriages must be distinctly Christian. Our marriages must be distinctly Christian. We must define marriage as the Scriptures define it. We must understand the true purpose of marriage as God created it, that it is to bring glory to God and to Christ. We must live holy within our marriage relationships, fulfilling the roles that God has called us to take as husband and wife. And if the issue of divorce and remarriage should arise within our midst, may our divorces and our remarriages also be governed by God's most holy word. May the Lord help us in these things and receive all the glory, honor, and praise. Let's bow together for prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the clarity that it does bring. We admit that some things that are contained within it are difficult to understand, but not impossible. So help us to be diligent students of your word. Lord, in those situations where we have erred concerning our belief, help us to turn from those errors and to always pursue truth. Father, help us to be humble in this way, to, to truly submit to the authority of your word. Father, help us to believe your word as you have revealed it and to live according to it. And Father, we do together confess that we struggle to do these things. We struggle sometimes in our understanding. We especially struggle when it comes to the implementation of the truths that you have revealed to us. Lord, we fall into sin and we stumble time and time again. Have mercy on us, Lord. I pray for our marriages and this church in particular, Lord, that you would bless them. Give us more of your grace, Lord. Sustain us. Humble us. Help us to truly love one another in Christ Jesus as husbands and wives. Lord, bless our children as they are brought up in these healthy marriages. Father, I do pray that you would bring glory to your name uh, through the people of this church and particularly through the marriages of this church. Father, for those who have found themselves in difficult situations, for those who um, have, have passed through uh, stormy waters when it comes to the marriage relationship in the past, Lord, uh, give them clear direction. I, uh, now I pray and, and also, Lord, comfort them. Lord, I pray that you would help us all to walk in holiness from this day forward. We trust that there is blessing in it. We trust also that you will be most honored as we do. It's in Christ's name that we pray and all of God's people say, Amen.